We are Harvard Ventures, and this is The Bottom Line, a podcast about entrepreneurship, innovation, and everything in between. Today, we'll be joined by the chemist, inventor, entrepreneur, and one of the founders of green chemistry, Dr. John Warner. He is well known for starting the world's first PhD program in green chemistry and for founding the Warner Babcock Institute for Green Chemistry at University of Massachusetts Lowell. In addition to his achievements in academia, Warner founded Beyond Benign, a nonprofit organization dedicated to green chemistry education for scientists, educators, and citizens. He holds over 270 patents across 80 different patent families and has worked with over 100 Fortune 500 companies to invent sustainable and commercially relevant technologies across a diverse array of verticals. Let's get started. You received a BS in chemistry from UMass Boston and a PhD in chemistry from Princeton University. What inspired you to pursue your PhD, and what advice do you have for students who may be considering a similar educational path that combines science and entrepreneurship? Asking for a friend. <laughs> well, I think the most important thing is I, I found somewhat later in life, um, I, I actually went to university as a musician and as a music major. And through a series of strange events, found myself in a chemistry research lab and fell in love with the idea of invention, the idea of creativity in the sciences. And so for me, it's, it's always been a passion to just be really into what it was I was doing, not worrying about the long-term objectives and how it's going to pay off in this way or that way, but just be totally absorbed in what it was. And I, and initially, interestingly enough, I was into cancer chemotherapy and my, my PhD is, is formally in medicinal chemistry and I worked with the Eli Lilly company for their uh, pharmaceutical that's called Olympter. It's one of the most successful anti-cancer drugs for solid tumors. And that was what I initially did. Next thing you know, I found myself in exploratory research at Polaroid, getting into material science and polymers and films. And while I was at Polaroid, me and a guy from the EPA came up with the idea of green chemistry, wrote a book, started green chemistry, went into academia, then after 10 years of academia, 12 years of academia in chemistry and plastics engineering, found myself starting my own companies and spinning out companies. And so interestingly enough, if you've asked myself, me any time in my life what I'd be doing in five years, I would have always been wrong. You know, <laughs> and so it's, you know, looking at life and seeing what what happens and you know, follow, following, you know, what, what feels right at the time. Because uh, the world has a way of making every plan not happen. So if you ask me today, what are my plans for the next 20 years? I will give you a step-by-step -step detailed plan. But if you say, do you think that'll still be valid tomorrow? I'll say probably not. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. What motivated you to make the transition from the academic world into startup land? First, I was an industrial chemist and got about 40, 50 patents at Polaroid and started seeing my inventions make their way into the real world. But I realized that manufacturing in general and science education in general was completely, there was an absence of toxicity, sustainability, Every university on the planet, you look at the chemistry program at Harvard, at Yale, at MIT, no chemist learns what makes a molecule toxic. 
what makes a molecule harmful for the environment. So when you hear on the news and look on the internet, you hear about this red dye in cosmetics that causes cancer or a plasticizer that causes birth defects or a monomer that's an endocrine disruptor, you say, why in the world would a chemist make a hazardous material? What I realized while I was at Polaroid was how could they not if it's not part of our fundamental training, it's not self-definitional for a chemist to anticipate what the negative impacts are of a molecule before they make it. And so I, I you know, I, I decided that that was my mission in life. So I left Polaroid and I went to the University of Massachusetts, a full professor and chair of chemistry, full professor of plastics engineering, director of biochemistry, but I started the world's first PhD program in green chemistry, which is very industrial focused. How can you get products to market as fast as possible, but also by addressing these issues of toxicity to human health and the environment? And what I found was A, it was a creative boost, because no one else is learning it. Anything that differentiates you gives you a creative edge. But also because you're addressing these real world aspects, there's a faster time to market and it's more cost effective. So I started the, the theory, the philosophy, published a bunch of papers, filed some patents, but realized that invention is a full-time job. Being a professor is a full-time job. I felt that the students deserve a full-time professor and I couldn't be a full-time professor and be starting companies. And so it broke my heart. I was, you know, I, I won an award called the, you know, uh, one of the best professors in the United States spent a half an hour in the Oval Office with President Bush. I loved being an academic so much that if I couldn't do it 100%, I was unwilling to do it. So I left and I, I met this man named Jim Babcock, who was very, very simpatico with my vision of inventing things that are consistent with my 12 principles of green chemistry, but to have this incredible research lab. So in north of, north of Boston in Wilmington, Massachusetts, the 42,000 square foot chemistry lab with every piece of equipment that you would find in the best of chemistry departments, every piece of equipment that you'd find in the best engineering departments hired about 30 scientists, but just focused on invention, didn't publish papers, didn't speak at technical conferences, just put the nose to the grindstone invent and that and I realized that it, it is a full-time job to focus on invention to get it right and and that and the point is to get it right what happens if you look at all the sustainability issues that we have today and this is going to be a little bit controversial but I would argue the elevator pitch is the absolute antithesis of sustainability that if you have to quickly give an elevator pitch, the, oh, by the way, it might be toxic, probably doesn't come up. In an elevator pitch, the, oh man, the supply chain for this thing is involving some, some questionable activities in other countries. Well, you didn't get to talk about that in the elevator pitch. And so this concept of fast, 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 I felt you cannot invent morally and ethically by doing it quick. And you can't do it not being a full-time passionate thing. And so in my opinion, if you're going to take the time to create a material that is going to be expressed in the real world, 
the world deserves. You have a moral and ethical responsibility, not to do it as quickly, as fastly as possible, but as ethically as possible. And that's kind of a different perspective, but I refuse to do it any other way. Yeah, I think that's some really powerful insight. And you alluded to this before, but why is green chemistry such a powerful platform for innovation? And what are the most exciting startup opportunities in the field? People, the world has been trying to deal with risk since the beginning of time. You know, companies know if you make your customer sick or kill them, that's really bad for sales. So it's not a new concept to make things safe. But what I would argue is that the paradigm has historically been you mitigate exposure. We take it as a fait accompli. The chemistry has to be dangerous, but that's okay. We'll wear gloves to protect our skin. We'll wear masks to protect our lungs. We'll put goggles, we'll install scrubbers and filters and smokestacks, and we'll mitigate the risk by engineering exposure controls. And the problem is, of course, accidents happen. And when you hear about a disaster, it's because one of those exposure controls fell apart. And those exposure mitigations cost a ton of money. So if you take a step back and say, can I make the product intrinsically safe? Make the product so it's not a carcinogen. Make the product so it doesn't hurt the environment. Then all the costs associated with mitigating risk go away, and all the and, and you've got a moral and ethical better product. But as I said before, if you look at the curriculum of chemistry worldwide, chemists, material scientists, engineers never learn how to predict the potential hazards in the material. Green chemistry is that set of criteria. And, it, and it's absent. The one way to look at it is my, I have a seven-year-old daughter. She speaks perfect English. She can read, she can write, she is a perfect in communicating, but she has no idea what a noun is. She has no idea what a verb is, what sentence structure is and all that. So in next year, she'll probably start learning about grammar and sentence structure. And you could say, well, why bother? She's reading, she's writing, she's already communicating fine. Why go through the process of learning about nouns and verbs? But I'd argue right now, she's just getting by mimicking her environment. And when she learns sentence structure, when she learns nouns and verbs and things like that, she will operate at a much higher level, the way she communicates to the outside world, but also the way she communicates to herself. Now, I would argue the field of chemistry is like my seven-year-old daughter. People want to not use toxic materials. People want to not make toxic hazardous products. But nowhere in our education did we have the grammar, the nouns and the verbs of how to make things safe. Green chemistry is those nouns and verbs. And you're hearing a 19-year-old cat that is very vocal right now. <laughs> All right, great. That's a great analogy, and of course we love the cat. Uh, so I'm going to pass things off to Fabrizio here for the next set of questions. Thanks so much. So in regard to being able to develop ideas with a sustainability framework in mind, what's an idea that has kept you up at night lately? Or in other words, what's a new technology or innovation 
that you're really excited about in the world of green chemistry? So the first thing I would say is that education is the first thing. I believe in humans doing the right thing. And so if you were to ask me, John, what is more important? Should we work on solvents? Should we work on brominated flame retardants? Should we work on global climate change mitigation? Should we be working on water? I would say that, well, if we change the way we teach chemists, and every chemist and every chemical engineer and every material scientist has the tools, the sentence structure of safety and sustainability, then everything they do will get better. So job number one is to address education. And that's why I started a nonprofit organization that my uh, Amy Cannon is the executive director of Beyond Benign that is creating curriculum, not only for K through 12, but for universities. And we ask chemistry departments and engineering departments to sign a commitment saying that somehow they'll find a way to get the principles of green chemistry into the required curriculum, not the elective curriculum, and there's about 75, 80 universities worldwide who have now signed on that. So that is first. Now, when they say, what keeps me up at night as far as what technologies, I do feel endocrine disruptors is an issue that we really need to wrap our hands around because there's not a lot of good science yet about predicting what is a endocrine disruptor and what is not an endocrine disruptor. And the, the consequences of endocrine disruption uh, is just now becoming more and more, we're becoming more and more aware of it as being linked to autism, it's being linked to all kinds of, of you know, obesity and issues like that. And so that scares me, that keeps me awake at night and it's the absence of knowledge that worries me, you know, and that we have so much still to learn. So looking as well at the policymaking side, where we know you previously worked as an advisor and a manager to policymakers, what have been the biggest administrative roadblocks that you have faced when working towards the protection of human health in the environment? So not only in terms of education, but also in terms of policymaking and moving towards the right direction. Funny, in, in every aspect, it's always but that's not the way we've always done it. The inertia of change. There's a certain comfort in the way we've always done things. And the assumption that the reason we've done things, we've been doing this for a long time, we've evolved to a point. And the interesting thing is, is you know, <laughs> it's usually the committee mentality. Every individual will sit and say, yeah, yeah, this sounds right. But they, whoever they are, will never go for it. And so individuals almost always see the right path, but somehow attribute some collective mind to prevent change. And if you think about it, that's the most unnatural force that humans have created. You know, the, the concept of the committee. There are no committees in nature. You know, if there was a committee in nature, it would have looked at the design of a giraffe and said, oh, that'll never work. But because there was no committee, the giraffe happened. And I think one of the things is we overthink as collectives to find what, what and, and resist change. And the reason that change is so hard is because precedent, those who can master what happened before, usually use that knowledge to say we shouldn't do it because it might not work. 
You can only say something won't work by citing precedent. If you say something might work, then by definition, if it's new and different, there is no precedent. So what is the safest thing to do? To say something might not work and here is why. You can't say here is why something will work without being vulnerable. You know? And so I find that that personal fear uh, puts people in mind. But there are heroes in uh, government agencies. The European Union is really starting to move on to green chemistry. There are things that are happening there that if you were to ask me five years ago, would this happen? I'd say, yeah, maybe in 20. And it's starting to happen now. ECHA the, um, is, is now looking at how do we look at, at chemicals policy. And, and, and it's really kind of simple. Chemicals policy is the demand for better technologies. But without a supply of better technologies, all the demand in the world isn't going to map. It's just going to make people sad, all right? And so green chemistry is saying, well, gee, if we're going to invent better technologies to replace the, repl the, the, the nasty materials out there, then we better figure out how to invent them. And so policies usually assume that an alternative exists. And they think, okay, we will create a policy to force that alternative to make its way into the real world. And by my assessment, most of the time, 65, 70% of the time, the alternative hasn't been invented yet. So all the policy in the world can't make someone invent something. The Clean Air Act in the United States filed six years after the invention of the catalytic converter. The Clean Air Act did not make people invent the catalytic converter. The Clean Air Act made people use that which was already invented. And so we need to find a way to invent these technologies so that policies can mandate their use. But it's a subtle difference. Policy doesn't help create inventions. It helps mandate their use. And that's where we need new innovation, new creativity. I totally agree with the issue of inertia and committees, which often prevent us from moving forward. And I also find super interesting that maybe the best way to overcome those issues is to educate people differently and to instruct chemists with a green mindset at the beginning. But perhaps there is also a bigger problem. Most policymakers might not even know how to create the right policies, simply because they might lack knowledge in chemistry and unlike you, they might not be experts in the field. So what advice do you have to bridge the gap in understanding that might exist between different stakeholders? And in what ways can you encourage chemists and non-chemists to work together? That, that is a super important aspect. It's, it's interesting. When I, when I received this presidential award in the Bush administration. I started by sitting in the Roosevelt room outside the Oval Office with, at the time, the, the, the chief of staff was Andrew Card, who was from, the, from Massachusetts. And he was actually an engineer. And he sat with me and he said, John, do you realize there are no scientists in the White House? Do you realize that most congressmen and most senators don't want to be on the science committees because no one gets votes 
for that. And so the junior Congress people and the junior senators are the ones that get put on these things. And so, and then at that point, I was a professor and they said, and he kind of joked to me, he said, if one of your students, a star student that you really thought a lot of, if she said to you, she's going to go into policy, would you try to stop them? And I go, oh God, I probably would. And I go, well, how do we get to where we want to be if there isn't communication? And so what we find is people who know science know science and people who know um, policy know policy. In July, I testified to the House Science Committee. There is a bill in Congress called the Sustainable Chemistry Research and Development Act. All right. It's interesting. You know, when Bob Mueller Every all eyes were on Bob Mueller testifying on a Wednesday. Well, on Thursday, I was in the same chair testifying, kind of ironic. No one cared, of course. But what was cool is that bill was passed unanimously by both the Democrats and the Republicans. That if you're an environmentalist, you get it. You want technologies that are going to be better for the environment. If you want to be more competitive, faster to market, well, you get it. And so there is no objection once you understand what it is. Policy people say, oh, my God. But what usually happens is they don't take the time to understand what it is. The word green conjures up some images. Oh my goodness, the word chemistry conjures up a lot of images. And so getting people to invest the neuron, the, the nerve cells just to understand what it is. Because what I have found in the 30 years I've been at this, no one after I have described this has come to me and said, no, you're wrong. They usually say, oh my God, this just makes so much sense. Why aren't we doing it? And so my question is, well, why didn't you take the time to figure that out before I came to talk to you? You know, and, and so we, it's communication, communication, communication. Well, thank you very much for sharing those insights with us. I guess that's one of the major problems we are facing today. And hopefully we'll be able to overcome this lack of understanding soon. In my green chemistry PhD program, I had a one semester course on chemicals policy. You know, when you think of Tosca, then the United States, Tosca governs chemical enterprises. In Europe, it's the REACH legislation. I would argue that most chemists graduate with a PhD having no idea what they are. Now, how can you invent things in response to policies if when you become a chemist, it's not part of your training? And so once it, this isn't, this is so important. It shouldn't be the stuff left for after you get your PhD. It should be part of the fundamental self-definition of what it means to do this. And until we, we, we make that change, you know, there's going to be, and this is the, the interesting benefit. Companies that do green chemistry now have a competitive advantage because universities aren't teaching this. Now, in a strange way, I want that competitive advantage to go away and have everybody be doing it. But I'm a realist. That's probably a decade of competitive advantage. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And something that stands out to me about the entirety of this conversation is that change has to be implemented at a fundamental level, all the way down yeah. to how you educate students rather than incrementally. Mm -hmm. And I know that you've had experience on various different sustainability boards for non-green chemistry companies such as Apple and Biogen, which represent such a diverse array of verticals. 
So how do you begin to apply your knowledge and this insight that change has to be fundamental to tackle these innovation problems in a lot of these different fields? Well, I, I think that one of the biggest issues that we as humans face is the, you know, the perception that we can't do something. You know, I've, I've, I've been an educator for so long, I see that when students arrive at a university, they believe they can do anything. And you know what? They're actually right. But after a few years of classes, they're convinced that they can't anymore. You know, and it seems the exact opposite. You know, when, when universities say, hey, we want to have a class on innovation, I say, well, wait a minute, people are born innovative. What are we doing to rob them of the ability to innovate? It's kind of like saying, let's have a class on how to avoid student debt. Well, there's a cause and effect here that's kind of related. And I feel innovation is the same way in that we need this fundamental understanding of how people are trained and how they approach problem solving. And, and, and I do believe it's about this whole over-focus on the precedent. If you want to get funding, you know, really simple thing. If you, four, if you three are in a, a group and I am going to present two ideas to you, one idea, you say, oh, that makes sense. That's really good. Wow, that really makes sense. That's good. And one of them, you say, oh, you're crazy. This is ridiculous. There's no chance of that happening. Which one are you likely to fund? The one that makes sense. Which one is actually more innovative? The one that you need. The more people think something won't work, the more innovative it is. But all of our mechanisms go to that which is as de-risked as much as possible. So one thing I would do if I had a magic wand with government funding is I would create more lotteries, not have pitch contests, not have people filling all this time and effort writing a proposal and then people evaluating proposals because that essentially is how can we superimpose this on things that have happened in the past to de-risk and make sure it likely happened. But when we go back to it, the giraffe happened because it was new and different. And we don't have in our society a mechanism to create new and different. And because most invested technology fail anyways, what is it? Less than 10% of new companies actually succeed. What is the risk of adding a little bit of lottery to it and, and, and giving things that everyone thought wouldn't work a, a chance? And so coming back to the, to the fundamentals, this very fundamental perception, not only of toxicological and sustainable risk, but intellectual risk. We don't deal with it well we're looking for comfort and innovation is not comfortable so you have had a lot of experience in not only startups and policy making but as we've talked about in our conversation you've been involved in academia and nonprofits do you hold the same sorts of innovation principles constant and do you think that the idea that you just spoke about about having a lottery would make sense for application across all these different domains Yes, I, I, I really do. Is part of my sad experience is I have been on committees that are reviewing proposals. And if I'm on one of those committees, I take that very seriously. I read the proposal carefully. I look up references and I do all this work and I show up at this meeting. And usually someone else at the table 
kind of apparent. They didn't even read the applications, but they're the loudest. They're the most dominant and drive the, and I say, oh, this is such a shame. People have spent all this time putting all their heart and effort into preparing this. And it ultimately was kind of arbitrary anyways, but it was one person who's very loud. And so why not just allow that to happen, remove the loud person and their opinion and actually create some aspect of lottery? And I and I I think that we need we need that because again, I I feel that bringing something into the world that has never existed before, that's not art, that's not science, that's something far more human. That's this 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 passion for creativity everybody has, but the world teaches them to be afraid of it, and they shouldn't be. And we need to, to, to not create ways to help them. We need to remove the barriers that are preventing them. And someone who's creative that has a great idea, how do we help them you know, remove those barriers so that they can do it and that passion can push them through? And so roll the dice every once in a while. If we can't get the infrastructure to work just right, <laughs> and take the pieces that are on the table, just toss it over and start again with, with something completely random. I don't see us getting in a bad spot because of that. I think that's a really fantastic mentality and that's part of what we tried to do as a community at Harvard Ventures is to kind of remove the barriers for students getting interested in startups and venture capital because it is a very um, kind of clouded, mystified field to go into, particularly as an undergraduate where more conventional jobs and companies with very large recruiting teams on campus tend to attract the most attention and tend to be what students gravitate towards to do after college. But there is a whole other um, realm of entrepreneurship and innovation that they could get into. And um, Harvard Ventures, through education and like this, seeks to, uh, like I said, kind of tackle that barrier. So now we want to move on to our final question, something that we ask all of our guests is, what is your hottest take? One of the things that I feel very strongly is that in science, in um, investment community, the word focus is applied quite a bit. Focus, focus, focus. What is the thing? Now, I have in the last few years, I have an ALS drug in clinical trials. I have a hair color technology on the market. I have an asphalt paving technology. I have a photovoltaic technology. People say, "Wimp, this is crazy. This is impossible. How can you be working in all these things? I, I tell the story that one day I was uh, at an asphalt plant. I'm wearing a hard hat, gloves, holding a shovel with boots, and I'm digging in the asphalt. And my cell phone goes off, and it's clinicians in Finland giving me the results of an Alzheimer's drug that I've invented. Now, most people would say, wait a minute, someone doing neurobiology digging in asphalt, this doesn't compute. But to me, the mechanism of Alzheimer's I'm chasing is these organic polymers around inorganic particles. I have a small molecule that slips into the interface to control the way it aggregates. What is asphalt? An organic polymer wrapped around an inorganic particle. I'm a small molecule that slips into the interface that controls. We have all these silos that I would argue if I wasn't working on Alzheimer's, I wouldn't have been able to do the asphalt. And if I wasn't doing asphalt, I wouldn't have done the Alzheimer's. People say, oh, when I go fishing, I have my best ideas. I have this, this thing that 
Invention doesn't have in the, happen in the focal point. It happens in the periphery. Some people say, I'm going to do something completely different, so my invention is in the periphery. I feel the most effective thing to do is have a bunch of projects so that when you're working on one project, another project is in the periphery. And when you look at that project, another project is in the periphery. And so what seems to be an absence of focus and one more step back is actually profound focus where there is commonality between the technologies. And what happens is, is if you're doing that in a multifaceted way, you almost have to succeed. So people say, John, oh, how many times have you, have you failed? And I go, well, I've redefined success. If I say to myself, I'm trying to solve this problem, and if all of a sudden I realize that's not the right problem to solve, but if I go 30 degrees in this direction, I do that. As long as you keep your eyes open and recognize what the molecules, what the materials, what the market wants you to do, and you follow that, you can't not succeed. But if you say, I'm gonna make this plan and I am the smartest person in the world and my plan is just so smart, I'll ignore everything that the world tells me and I'll keep marching till I get to the cliff and I fall off the end. You know, but if you keep your eyes open and recognize and have humility that no one is smart enough to get it right in the plan and allow the world to change the plan. I think that's my most country, but most, funding mechanisms don't fund the success, they fund the plan. And the plan is almost certain to fail, at least 90, 95% of the time. So we need to change our mechanism to be a little bit random at the start and then to accommodate adjusting that plan to succeed. It's just unfortunately not the way it's done. And that's the bottom line. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to check us out online at harvardventures.org and follow us on Instagram at harvard underscore ventures. See you next week for a new episode of The Bottom Line.